From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. And today, we're going back to the basics, back to the story of Adam and Eve. This mythology has been used in many different ways, uh, including the whole theology of sin and salvation. Uh, but beyond that, Adam and Eve are cultural icons, and they form the basic symbolism for our how to construct society, gender roles, advertising, jokes, even Christian wife spanking. Hang on to your hat. My guests are Professor Linda S. Shearing, a professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Gonzaga University, and Professor Valerie Ziegler, professor of Religious Studies at DePaul University. And they are the co-authors of a new book published by Baylor University Press. It's called Enticed by Eden, How Western Culture Uses, Confuses, and sometimes abuses Adam and Eve. And they are with me both via Skype, uh, Professor Shearing from Spokane, Washington, and Professor Ziegler from Greencastle, Indiana. Welcome to both of you to Religion for Life. Thank you. Thanks. Great well, to be here. Well, I, I'm, glad we're, I'm glad to have you here. This is a fascinating book. Uh, Adam and Eve are, are everywhere. Uh, tell us about how you came to write this book and, and to co-author it. Well, we had actually written a book in uh, that was published in 1999 on Eve and Adam looking at the social construction of gender in uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And when we finished that book, we realized we had a lot of material that dealt with popular culture that we hadn't actually addressed because of the nature of the book. And so uh, in the past decade, we've been presenting at various conferences and out of that, um, this collaboration grew to the book that you mentioned. And so this book is divided into two sections, and they describe the two ways that uh, the Adam and Eve story is, is used in modern times, recreate and recycle. Can you describe the difference between those two? Uh, Linda, I'll take... Okay. Sure. Okay. This is Professor Ziegler. Yeah. Basically... The book is divided into two halves. The first half looks at recreating Eden. And there we're looking at conservative evangelical uh, in America who attempt to recreate the conditions of the garden, or at least the garden as they understand it. And the second part of the book that we call recycling looks at secular ways of uh, incorporating images from Eden. So we looked at humor and advertising and actually also at the sex industry. Uh, listeners may not realize, but if you Google Adam and Eve, uh, the first hit that you'll get is Adam and Eve sex toys. Uh, so yeah, mm. there, there's a lot out there to look at, definitely. And you uncover really uh, the the world of evangelical Christian romance. It, it I I didn't know a lot about this. Uh, Adam and Eve are are held up as models of of red hot lovers, and God's all for it. Is 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 this a, a change in evangelical thinking? I, I've often thought of it as more kind of prudish, but this is a little bit different. Yeah, it is a little bit different. But I'll tell you, uh, for the past forty years at least, evangelicals have been writing about marital sex, and they've been writing sex manuals, uh, arguing that evangelical sex is the most frequent and best on earth. 
uh, and that Old Testament figures were actually red-hot lovers. So it's not too much of a jump from that to argue that Adam and Eve were actually created as soulmates for one another, and that God is, in fact, the creator of romance. And so uh, that's a topic that we followed up, not just looking at marriage, but we also looked at online Christian dating. Uh, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of evangelical sex out there, John. <laughs> well, it, but it's very uh, structured, though, right? And that's how the Adam and Eve myth also fits in, or their interpretation of it. That's exactly right. Uh, the presupposition is that God created man to be the initiator in all relationships with woman, and that woman is to be the passive recipient of male desire. Uh, so it's a, a very higher gender hierarchical universe, uh, which actually raises some really interesting issues when we got to the chapter on online Christian dating, uh, because basically people go to online Christian dating to find their soulmates. And it isn't typical, for example, for a woman to join an online dating group and then never actually contact a man. I mean, uh, you know, obviates the, the purpose of joining the group. Uh, but theologically, that's what is supposed to happen. Uh, and what, what we found is that it doesn't always work in the real world to argue that men only are initiators and men, women only are passive recipients. Uh, what's actually happening in the evangelical world is that people are uh, postponing marriage till later and later and later. And there's actually a movement within evangelicalism that calls that a sin and that insists that marriage is obligatory for every Christian uh, unless that person actually has some kind of particular call to celibacy. Uh, so it's easy to imagine that men and women today will find soulmates as Adam found Eve and Eve found Adam. But in reality, it's much more difficult uh, to bring that off. It was a fun read. It was, it was you know, uh, that f those first chapters, though, were like a little scary. Um, yeah. That part yeah. of Christian dominionism and all of that kind yes. of thing, you know, it that is. that was a, that was a part that was really. I mean, this isn't about just people dating; it's about you know establishing America as Eden again. It, right. that, that's true, uh, and I have to say, all the pink stuff in chapter one and the makeup uh, uh -huh. and the princesses and all that—I mean, it's just uh, astonishing, uh, particularly from Christians who claim, claim to be countercultural. Uh, there's no counterculturalism there. It's it's absolute cultural captivity. Uh, I think this whole pink thing and the purity rings and all of that stuff is really popular in this area. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. And the proper roles for boys and girls are established pretty early uh, with the Adam and Eve story then, aren't they? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Although, as you know, uh, especially with the purity rings and the purity balls, uh, it's often the, the girl's father who's actually standing in place of Prince Charming. Uh, so you get some very strange family dynamics going on there. Uh, yeah. I've always thought that was a little creepy. Yeah, it is a little creepy. Very it, creepy. It's more than a little creepy, actually, some <laughs> of it. Uh, particularly when we looked at the Vision Forum people and the stay-at-home daughters movement. Uh, I, unquestionably, there are uh, homeschooled girls in families that are living out in the boonies who really aren't learning how to read, not actually, uh, who are really being schooled only 
to be barefoot and pregnant. Uh, and they, you know, learn how to be uh, obedient to their fathers and then they get passed along to their husbands and they, they never have personal autonomy or really any way of getting out of the situation uh, because they're not educated, they don't have their own source of income, uh, and some of them live in, in isolated areas. Uh, and all of that is quite scary. I'm speaking with Valerie Ziegler and uh, Linda Shearing, uh, co-authors of Enticed by Eden, How Western Culture Uses, Confuses, and Sometimes Abuses uh, Adam and Eve. And so how do Adam and Eve then fit into this? How did they become even a symbol for sexuality? Uh, it really isn't in the story, is it? Well, Linda, you want to take that one? Okay. Uh, no, but people actually saw it in the story. That is... Um, the word in Hebrew, yada, uh, which is the word to know, can imply a carnal knowledge as well as a cerebral knowledge. Uh, and obviously, once you have one man and one woman naked in a scenario, the, uh, the readers are going to sort of connect the dots, so to speak. And they did. Uh, and of course, in the very next chapter, in chapter four, at the very beginning, you have the birth of children. So even in the ancient minds, um, they suspected that there was a lot more going on in the garden than simply talking and holding hands. And so uh, the early rabbis actually would talk about the various, various sexual aspects. And so seeing sex in the garden is not new at all. Um, the, uh, but seeing them as the uh, primary lovers and red-hot lovers I think is a contemporary construction of some of these groups that, that Valerie was talking about. Though the notion of having the male as initiator uh, in sexual relationships, it was very interesting as Val was talking. I was thinking back on the suffrage movement in the United States. Mm -hmm. One, uh, It doesn't deal with sex, but in terms of initiation, one of the arguments against giving women the right to vote was chapter three of Genesis, that is, look at what happened when women initiated conversation. Uh, and so you, do you really want them to hold uh, a political office? And so that whole notion of having the woman speak to the snake first uh, was seen by some people as an inappropriate initiation of contact. So um, seeing it, I guess, as the evangelicals do in terms of sexual relationships, um, really you can, you can trace back quite a distance. The idea of the whole uh, uh, red hot thing, uh -huh. is that that's kind of American though, isn't it? Or Oh, I think it's pretty American. <laughs> okay. Although again, you know, that's not so recent either. I mean, a century ago, uh, Billy Sunday, the evangelist was, you know, crossing the, the great American continent telling people that Christians weren't li lily-livered weaklings, but were actually red-hot-blooded men, and that, you know, Christianity was a muscular religion that was aimed at men. Uh, it's really not so far from that to deciding that what we're really talking about is uh, Christian men as red-hot lovers. I mean, I guess there's some perhaps wish fulfillment in that as well. But, you know, we live in a culture that uh, is fascinated by sexuality, and uh, that 
enjoys sexual athleticism. So it's not surprising that uh, if those kind of currents are in the larger culture, evangelical Christianity is picking them up. You know, the church doesn't always dictate to the culture. Sometimes the church is in captivity to it. And, this and should, I think yeah. you have to remember, too, that much of this is takes place online. And one of the things about the Internet is that there are no geopolitical boundaries, so to speak. And so even though some of this might originate in the United States with the United States folk, uh, it's still open to the purview of a much more global audience. And ultimately, the bottom line here is this is about gender and power, isn't it? And it's about who controls, ultimately, sexuality and uh, keeping gender roles in a very strict uh, order. Absolutely. Uh, It's all about power. And uh, as we said before, uh, this is an extremely hierarchical world in terms of gender. Uh, Some of the groups that we looked at wouldn't allow women to vote, wouldn't allow women to work outside the home, wouldn't allow anyone to practice birth control. Uh, So yeah, it's definitely about power and also about political hopes of remaking American culture along these lines. You know, I should say too, even with the recycling material, there is a eroticism there, though you encounter it in a different way. That is, insofar as uh, in Genesis 3, one sees a tempting kind of activity. Uh, What happens is uh, advertisers pick up that notion of temptation and they translate it, or or I should say it morphs, into an erotic temptation. So both with recreating and recycling, they're picking up on this eroticism, but in totally different ways. And you also write about uh, Christian wife spanking. So what's this about, and, and do a lot of people do this? And it seems to be also related to this power domination. Um, but I don't remember in the Bible where Adam spanked Eve. <laughs> well, you know, Linda says we have to fill in the blanks. Okay. There. No, uh, there, there is no scene that of which we are aware in which Adam spanked Eve. <laughs> And uh, the practitioners of Christian domestic discipline wouldn't argue that Adam spanked Eve, but they do argue that in Genesis 3, the woman is told that her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. If her husband is to rule over her, they argue, uh, he must have some kind of instrument by which to enforce his rule. And so that's where... uh, they decide that spanking is that method of enforcement. Uh, For people who practice Christian domestic discipline, I should also say that many of them find wife spanking to be uh, inherently erotic. So it has uh, elements of pleasure within it, as well as obviously uh, elements of of pain and suffering. Um, So that's where... uh, the idea for Christian domestic discipline comes from, and it morphs beautifully with the kind of gender hierarchy that we've been talking about all along. Here the idea is uh, a woman needs to be spanked regularly so that she stays in her place, and spanking reinforces the whole idea, as these people read it, of Genesis 3, that a woman's desire shall be for her husband and he will rule over her. And this really isn't about, as you write in, in your book, uh, about, you know, 
domination and submission uh, sexual practice that people might engage in for play. This is serious business, isn't it? This is about, uh, there's no safe words you talk uh, in your book. And this is, it seemed to me as I was reading that this is kind of dangerous behavior. It could lead to, this is abuse in a sense. Oh, yeah, it definitely could and undoubtedly in some cases does lead to abuse. Uh, And one of the interesting things is that couples who practice Christian domestic discipline are very careful not to let anyone know, uh, even their children, actually, especially their children. You don't want your children talking, uh, because if any of this were reported to the police, uh, yeah, the man could easily uh, be arrested or charged at any rate with uh, domestic abuse. So it it is, it does have elements of abuse and danger within it. It also, though, has playful elements. Uh, Some couples practice play spanking, for example. Uh, Other couples may practice play spanking, but they'll also do things like it's called maintenance discipline, uh, where the wife is regularly spanked even though she hasn't done anything wrong, just to enforce the whole idea of the husband as ruler over the wife. Uh, But there are also other elements, more erotic elements, For example, there's a huge market, again, among couples who practice Christian domestic discipline for Christian domestic discipline erotic spanking fiction. People are writing novels uh, or short stories, spanking short stories online, uh, or they're also selling them on Amazon, and there's a real market for them. Uh, People in the movement read them, enjoy them. So. What can I say? I guess it's sort of an all-purpose movement. Uh, it's it's more complex than people might think. And colleagues, when you when you tell them what you're writing about, uh, they just look in abject horror. And I say, I tell you what, Google CDD. Do on uh, go on Google Images, and they are just astonished and appalled at what they find. Uh, because you don't have to, you don't have to dig very deep to find all of this. But you know, many of them didn't even dream that it existed. When we were presenting someplace else at a national meeting, uh, Valerie, at the end of her presentation on CDD, asked the audience if anybody had ever heard of CDD, because most people haven't. After they read the book, they Google and they're absolutely astonished that there's this online conversation. But to our astonishment, we had several people, academics in the audience, raise their hand that said, yes, they had heard about CDD. So we, we had one person who was a practitioner. Yeah. <laughs> mm, wow. It's kind of fascinating where you find these things in the least likely places. When we started, we had no idea that Christian domestic discipline existed either. Yeah. But I knew I would find something like it because there had to be. Uh, eventually the question of enforcing gender hierarchy had to come up. And I knew I would find some kind of physical discipline that men were applying to women. You know, I had no idea that would it would also uh, involve erotic spanking fiction uh, or maintenance disciplines or things like that, but I knew it would exist. Uh, it just had to. It's just part and parcel with the model. Uh, just speaking was uh, Dr. Valerie Ziegler. Uh, she is the uh, professor 
of uh, Religious Studies at DePaul University, and also with me via Skype is Professor Linda Shearing, professor in the Department of Religion at uh, Gonzaga University, and they are the authors of Enticed by Eden, How Western Culture Uses, Confuses, and Sometimes Abuses Adam and Eve. Uh, and also in your book, you talk about Adam and Eve jokes, uh, and, and they are also about power, aren't they? Very much so. In a sense, uh, a lot, you know, we, we think about humor as something that's funny, but we often don't think of other dimensions of humor. That is, humor can uh, be a vehicle to actually uh, challenge certain stereotypes, but also to support certain stereotypes. One of the things that we found out is that there, there are quite a few of Adam and Eve jokes out there, but there are a certain segment of those jokes that really do either uh, try to um, tell a joke at the expense of women or tell a joke at the expense of men. So, for example, you might have a joke uh, that talks about uh, God creating um, Adam and then resting, and then a God creating woman, and then Adam and both Adam and God haven't rested since, so to speak. Uh-huh. So, you know, you have the sort of the stereotype of the nagging woman, uh, but conversely, you'll have jokes that um, do the opposite, that will play off of, for example, um, woman's, uh, the fact that woman is created uh, after man in Genesis 2. Uh, a lot of uh, people who have argued for the subordination of women have looked at that fact, that she was created second, therefore she has secondary status. But online, you have all of these jokes about um, why did God create uh, Eve second. And it was, you know, because uh, God was just practicing it the first time and the second time he made it right or something Mm -hmm. like that. In other words, the idea that her secondary status is not because um, man is alone, as the text says, but her secondary status is because man's creation was somehow flawed. So you have all of these jokes that either denigrate women or denigrate men. And then you'll have a branch of jokes that actually uh, critique both men and women. So it's very interesting. On the one hand, they're about humor. But the, on the other hand, jokes get away with saying things that are absolutely defamatory. Um, and one, the, the jokester has a, has a sense of deniability because they can say, well, it's only a joke. Don't get so upset. But that's the whole issue. It's not just a joke. It's really telegraphing certain things about what it means to be a man and woman in relationship with each other. And did you ever find uh, in any of these Adam and Eve stories through advertising or any of it in which it was actually um, what we might say uh, empowering or egalitarian in a way? Or is it always generally uh, dehumanizing towards women? Uh. In terms of advertising, you have to understand that that advertisers treat the story kind of like a toolbox. Mm -hmm. That is, they pick and choose uh, what they want to use. And so women can be depicted as very strong, but oftentimes it's connected with a kind of of sensual, tempting kind of of issue. Um, There was, for example, one uh, ad where, yes, women are... Uh, powerful in and of their own rights. But that particular ad was for um, sex toys that enabled women to um, have an orgasm without a guy. 
So, I mean, again, it's, it's, a, it's a commodification for purposes that have little to do, actually, with the original story. I do have an Adam and Eve joke. Uh, this is not about gender, I don't think, uh, but it does give the biblical reason for why the region from which this broadcast originates is called Southern Appalachia. I'm sure you've heard it, but um, well, I'm not sure that everyone has in the world, especially Northerners, so they should. It goes like this, uh, to the serpent said Eve, you shall not deceive, or I'll throw an Appalachia. <laughs> There you go. So I, I don't know. I don't know if that one would fit in with the gender and power, but uh, but it does give the biblical answer. Okay. Well, you know, not all Adam and Eve jokes are about gender and power, or not all uh, jokes about Eden are about gender and power. But insofar as you have one man, one woman, and an empty garden, you're going to have uh, obviously that range of jokes that really play around with what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and how those two relate to each other. So how, there, there are a lot of footnotes in this book. You did a lot of research. What was that? Did, did you both come from, in a sense, um, and speaking in the first part of the book, uh, a, a relationship with the evangelical culture, or was that come from it from an academic point of view, or how, how did you go about that? We were interested in popular culture. It's rare for scholars like us to get a chance to, you know, look at things that are interesting to real people. And uh, I was fascinated by what evangelicals were, were doing with the story of Adam and Eve. Uh, in some ways, I'll admit, I was also theologically horrified by it. And uh, in addition to describing what's going on, uh, I would say that our, our three chapters on recreation are also a theological critique of the conservative evangelical doctrine of biblical manhood and womanhood. Mm -hmm. I, I bet it was kind of fun to write this, though, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Oh, my gosh. We got to go, well, we went to Bible theme parks. We went to Adam and Eve sex stores. Uh, for, for a while, we thought we were going to have a chapter on food. Uh, that listeners, if they wanted to Google Adam and Eve and food, will find about 100,000 various Adam and Eve diets or back to Eden diets. Uh, yeah, we just, we had a great time. We got to travel some, we got to look at mm -hmm. things that we wouldn't normally do, and we never really ran out. We finally just decided we had to quit researching and drop a bunch of topics and just focus on a few, or we'd never, ever get this book written. <laughs> Linda, yeah, go ahead, Linda. No, I was, I was just going to say that tr that's true. I was working on a um, chapter on Adam and Eve and video games. Not because I'm a gamer, but because everyone else in my family is. And looking at the games they were playing, I was picking up on none other than Adam and Eve. And so it's really interesting to see just how embedded in Western culture the story of Adam and Eve is. Even though people might say they don't know the Bible, um, they know about Eden. Enticed by Eden, How Western Culture Uses, Confuses, and Sometimes Abuses Adam and Eve. My guests have been Linda Shearing and Valerie Ziegler on Religion for Life. Thank you so much for um, this insightful book and, uh, and for being with me today. 
Well, thank you. It was really fun talking to you. All right. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Sheck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. For more information about this program, including links to podcasts and uh, information about upcoming shows, go to religionforlife.com, religionforlife.com. Also follow Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. Be well.